I, like David, am grateful for the uh, hot air balloons. Now, when people talk about being awakened by the hot air blower on Sunday morning, I know they're not talking about me. Would you turn to the third chapter of James, please? Whenever I read the book of James, I always think of uh, Ogden Nash's poem about Oliver Bolivar Bohm, who up and rendered a slender tome. Uh, James' book only has five chapters, but uh, it is loaded with profound information. I get the impression that James is not an epistle. Uh, not a letter in the sense that Paul's letter to the Romans or to the Corinthians or any of the other epistles in the New Testament are letters. I think it was a sermon. It was a sermon, a condensed sermon that uh, James preached to the church in Jerusalem where he was the head elder. James, as you know, was one of the apostles, not one of the original 12, but he was designated an apostle by the Lord, I believe, after our Lord was raised from the dead. James, uh, as you may know, was Jesus' brother. Actually, his half-brother. They had the same mother, not the same father. And uh, you can imagine what it would be like to live in a family where you had a perfect older brother. Uh, James uh, had a hard time with that relationship. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I don't have an older brother, but I have an older sister, and I can tell you I'd have a very difficult time believing that she was God incarnate. (laughs) And she was a pretty nice lady. Uh, James struggled, I'm sure, with that relationship. But after the resurrection, Paul tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to James. It's a nice note. And uh, revealed himself. And then a lot of things that Jesus had said came back to James. As you read through the book, you discover that he he goes back in his mind over and over again to the things that Jesus said, the parables, the teachings. These were the seed plot for the whole book of James. James, uh, in chapter 3, did I ask you to turn to chapter 3? I've forgotten. James 3, verse 1. James uh, begins this chapter this way. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I read that verse and I'm ready to pronounce the benediction. I'm, uh, I'm a teacher. That's the way I make my living, as Augustine said. I'm a vendor of words. And... Uh, James makes it very clear that teachers are more culpable than others. They're more liable to judgment. That's scary. Some of you are teachers in public schools. Some of you teach in private schools. Some of you teach in Christian private schools. Some of you who are parents are teaching your children. It's a heavy responsibility. Because, as James goes on to say, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his own body in check. There is a text in the book of Proverbs that frightens me a great deal. It says, when words multiply, sin is not absent. 
You see, that's the problem with teaching. We use words, and we use a lot of words. That's the way I make my living. And the more words you use, the more inclined you are to fall into sin. And as James tells us in this first paragraph, the way we use, use words is the measure of our maturity. You notice how he puts it? We all stumble, that is, we all sin in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his own body in check. In other words, we are as good as our words, and very often our words are not very good. So our tongue tells on us, it tattles on us, shows us for what we are, demonstrates the state of our spiritual health. Almost every time I go to my physician, he tells me to stick out my tongue. Now, I don't know what it is about the fuzz on my tongue that uh, indicates the state of my health, but he looks at it and he says, you're a sick man. And James says that's what the tongue does. It tattles on us. It tells. It reveals the state of our spiritual being. It is the measure of our maturity. That's scary. That frightens me a good deal. Furthermore, the tongue is an immensely powerful instrument. Very important. As James goes on to say, little words mean a lot. We put bits into the mouths of hoses, uh, horses. It's not the only problem with the tongue. When we put bits, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. A little uh, small bit in the mouth of a brute animal is, controls it. Can turn it, manage it. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. The word that James uses is the idea that he's trying to suggest is that of a great galleon, uh, which is managed and steered by a, a very small rudder. The pilot can change direction at any point. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. He uses boasts. By metonymy, that is, in exchange for what a tongue can do. It can accomplish great things and boast about them. Little things mean a lot. Little words mean a lot. They can have a great impact upon, upon others. They're ineradicable. They cannot be unsaid. We cannot undo the damage that we do. A hasty word, a thoughtless word, something we blurt out in an unguarded moment devastates someone else, harms and hurts them. We give anything to take those words back, but we, we can't. They've gotten away from us. We say we have slipped up, you know, as though we're talking about making a piece of furniture in our hand slipped and it's an accident, but it, it's the kind of damage that cannot be repaired. People can forgive, but they find it very hard to affect, uh, to forget. A little word can have a great impact on others. I, I had a friend who was uh, riding his motorcycle down a freeway in California one time, and uh, a little bug flew in his mouth, and he lost control of his bike and ran into a concrete abutment. 
He wasn't hurt too seriously. He recovered, but he discovered that little things can have a great impact upon you. And so it is with the tongue. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it it accomplishes great things. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Carolyn and I were in Yellowstone this last uh, month in, in July, and we saw the results of that devastating fire in 1989. We got out of Yellowstone just ahead of the fire last year. We didn't start it, but uh, <laughs> we were there when it started. We always put our campfires out, really. And uh, we saw the results of that terrible uh, Conflagration. The whole forests were destroyed. Yellowstone, they say, won't be the same for a hundred years. James says the tongue is like that. It's a, it's a fire burning its way through our lives, leaving behind blackened ruin and, and destruction. Desolates whole areas of, of our life. It is, in fact, a world of evil among the parts of the body. I think James is using the same idiom that we used when we talk about being in a world of hurt. It has an enormous influence. It's a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. From the top of our heads to the sole of our feet, from inside out, we're corrupted intensively by the, by the tongue, and it sets on fire the whole course of of life, from the cradle to the grave, from womb to the tomb, from the first cries of infancy, on down through the argumentativeness of uh, adolescence into the crankiness and irritability and irascibility of old age, it touches every part of our being. So the tongue affects us intensively, it touches the whole person and extensively throughout our entire life. And is itself set on fire by hell? Interesting word that James uses. It's not the normal word for hell, Hades. It's um, actually the word Gehenna, which was a place name. Gehenna, it was, the, it was gay Hinnom. It was the valley of Hinnom. Uh, the Hinnomites were a family that lived in a valley just to the southwest of Jerusalem. If you ever visit Jerusalem, stand on those Turkish walls on the south side of the city and uh, look in that direction, look towards the south. There are two valleys that come together, the Kidron on the right and the Hinnom on the Pardon me, the Kidron on the left and the Hinnom on the right. The Hinnom was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Early in its history, someone set it on fire or through spontaneous combustion, it uh, caught on fire and it burned for hundreds of years. The foul smell of, of that place uh, uh, corrupted, the, polluted the air in, in Jerusalem for years and years. That's Jesus' description of hell, which is interesting. Hell is a kind of cosmic garbage dump, a place of wasted lives. James uses that word. And it's, it's a very apt description of, of the tongue. Uh, it's demonic, it's devilish, it's fiendish, it's foul. It's source underneath is rotten and, and corrupt. Now you can see what James is building his case powerful case that we should not presume to be teachers because we function with our tongues and the tongue is an incredibly powerful and effective instrument and one thoughtless word can devastate a life so it's not a task to be taken lightly 
Uh, he turns from the importance of the tongue to its incorrigibility in verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. Uh, when Carolyn and I were uh, uh, on vacation this summer, we went to Vancouver and visited that wonderful aquarium there. Some of you have, have been there and uh, uh, saw the killer whales that have been trained. Enormous, I guess they're mammals, aren't they? They aren't fish. Enormous mammals that, uh, can, that are controlled and domesticated and are... Uh, they're tamed. They're, they do what people tell them to do. James says every animal, fish, bird on the face of the earth is either domesticated or tamed or used in some way by man. But notice what he says. No man can tame the tongue. It's the most powerful force in the universe. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It is a wild thing. Furthermore, it's forked. There's a certain incongruity about the tongue. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Strikes me as a masterpiece of understatement. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring, my brothers? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. There, there is a certain incongruity about the tongue. It does odd, baffling things. With one side of our mouth, we praise God. With another, we curse men and women who are made in the image of God. Out of one side of our mouth, we bless our children. With the other side, we curse them. With one side of our mouth, we... Mouth, we whisper sweet nothings into the wife, into the ears of our spouses, and with the other side of our mouth we swear at them. James says, how odd. That shouldn't be. Something is amiss. It's interesting, James uh, ends his discussion of the teacher and the tongue at that point. He, he doesn't tell us what to do about it, but... Uh, in my mind, reading James is like reading Agatha Christie. There's, there are always clues, little subtle hints. And the hint is found in two places in this paragraph. First statement, no man can tame the tongue. Perhaps there's help from another. Secondly, he, he, in this discussion of, of the incongruous action of the tongue, there is the suggestion that we need to consider the source. If you approached a spring that at one moment poured forth brackish water and the next moment poured forth sweet water, you would come to the conclusion that two sources underlie that, that spring. There's no other explanation. Uh, and that tells us something about our tongue. Our, tum- our tongues simply express the source of control. James is not saying that we should suppress the tongue. The tongue cannot be suppressed. James makes that very clear. No man can tame the tongue. David, in one of his psalms, uh, talks about his own experience of trying to bring his tongue under, under control. He, he says, I decided to, to master my tongue, and while the fire burned, that is, while I mused, while I fumed, 
I spoke with my tongue. Oh, and does he ever hit that center we all can identify? You cannot clamp down on your tongue and control it. No man can, can master the tongue. So it is not controlled by, submit, by, by suppression. It, it can only be controlled by something else. It has to be governed by God. You see, the, the tongue simply indicates what source is in control. If God is in control of our hearts, if our hearts are submitted to him, out of that heart, the tongue expresses itself. But if the heart is under the control of Gehenna, then garbage will come out of our mouth. There's a story we used to read to our children. I, I have never been able to get it out of my mind when I used to work for the YMCA for their day camp program in Dallas, and I used to tell the story every week to the children that came through our program. It was about a Swiss village and a renowned well in the center of that village. The little village was centered on the well, and mountaineers and travelers would come way, go way out of their way in order to get a drink of water from that well because it was known for its, its sweet taste. One day, a Mountain climber uh, came down off the mountain, put his cup under the pump, gave it a couple of pumps to the handle, and out came this uh, foul-smelling water. He complained to the city council. The city council uh, gathered all the people. They, they uh, gathered uh, around, the, uh, around the well, and they began to discuss what they were going to do. And, and someone said, well, I think the mechanism is rusted. Let's replace the pump. And an old sage in the back of the room said, no, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? They said, well, maybe we need to paint the pump. The red paint's chipping off. Let's put another coat of paint on it. So they started to get the paint can and brush out. And uh, the old man said, how can something clean come from something unclean? Someone said, well, maybe we need to embellish the pump a bit. Let's put a rock garden and flowers around it. And the old man said, uh, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? Finally, they got the message, and to make a long story short, they sent someone down in the well. They found that the well was polluted and defiled. They cleaned it up, and when the source, the, 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 the source of sweet, clear water began to flow, then, then the well produced, the, the pump produced fresh water. So it is with us. So it is with us. The tongue just tells on us. It just tells us who's in control. I told you early on that uh, James was very much dependent on his brother Jesus, and he was in this case too. If you turn back to Matthew 12, you'll see Jesus, you'll hear Jesus saying exactly the same thing. Matthew 12, verse 33. He's talking here to the Pharisees who had claimed that Jesus was demon-possessed. Jesus says to them, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Now he's talking to unbelievers here, but he could very well talk to us because there is an unbelieving part of our hearts. Part of us is unconverted. There's that old life. That life from the past that sometimes gets the upper hand. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. And so what we've got to do is invite Jesus in to work his magic on us and begin to clean up the parts of our life that foul our speech. There's no other way. He'll do it in due time. The effect is not always immediate. It may take a while. But he'll go to work to do according to his will and his pleasure, and he'll begin to deal with the sources that cause us to defile others with our tongues. Now let's go on, because uh, I think the next section is related. Uh, if I were to put a title to this sermon, it would be The Teacher of the Tongue and Two Kinds of Wisdom, because he's talking about uh, those who are supposed to be full of knowledge. Teachers ought to know something. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And those of us who teach start to shift our weight, get our feet under us, and get ready to stand up. And uh, James uh, points his finger at me and says, no, not, not, not you. Not you. Sit down. Sit down. I'm not talking to you. Let the wise man show his wisdom by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, wisdom is not what we think it is. It's not being knowledgeable. It's a matter of behavior. Uh, some of you have read uh, Robert Fulgham's book, All I Ever Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It's really a very funny book. I read it. It's one of those books you read and laugh out loud. He's a very clever writer. Uh, as far as I know, he's not a believer, but he has some uh, remarkable insights. He was very close to the truth when he said, Wisdom is not at the top of graduate school mountain, but they're in the sandbox at nursery school. Where we learn the important things in life, share everything, play fair, don't hit, don't hit, put things back, clean up your own messes, don't take what isn't yours, say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Everything you need to know is in there somewhere, the golden rule and love and sane living. You see, that's what James is saying, wisdom it's not a matter of, of being merely knowledgeable. It's not a matter even of knowing the word. I was taught all my life to know the word, know the word, know the word. And we ought to know the word. But to know the word and not to do the word is not to know the word at all. Wisdom is more than just being knowledgeable. It's a matter of what James describes as good or beautiful behavior. There are several words for good in the New Testament. This is not the word for ethically good. It's the word for aesthetically good. It has to do with winsomeness of character. Gracious character. Like our Lord's. Who was full of grace and truth. One book I read this summer uh, pointed out something I never thought, out, uh, thought of before. Jesus rarely talked about grace. He just loved it. And that's why John said he was full of grace and truth. Always truthful, but always gracious, always winsome, always beautiful in his character. See, there's hardline good. 
There's just being right, rigorously right. And then there is that wisdom that softens your face, as the proverb puts it. And it's that that James is describing here. It's it's the good life, the truly good life. Deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. The best teachers I've ever had were, were gentle and humble. They were teachable. Jesus himself, is well, he describes himself as a teacher who is meek and lowly. He, he says, come and, and take my yoke upon you. That was uh, an idiom then for, for putting yourself under someone's instruction. Come and take my yoke upon you. For, he says, because I am meek and lowly in heart. Meek and humble teachers are easy to listen to. They're teachable. They're, they're flexible. They're not hardliners. And uh, James describes them here as those who have the humility that comes from wisdom. But on the other, other hand, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. A couple of interesting things there to note. One is that being merely knowledgeable will corrupt your heart. It distorts your thinking. You become envious. You get upset because people know more than you. Start playing this uh, one-upmanship game. and you know, Who is smarter than whom? <clears throat> who can outdo whom? And uh, it can corrupt a church. It can split a church. It can cause all kinds of, of problems. Furthermore, he says, if, you know, if you're preoccupied with knowledge, you get really ambitious to advance yourself. Your ambition becomes selfish. And there's nothing wrong with ambition, as long as it's ambition for God. We ought to be ambitious. We ought to get excited about the pearl of great price. We ought to be enthusiastic about seeing people hear the truth and grow in, in grace. What ought to drive us is the thought that we want his kingdom to, to come and his will to be done. But we should never be ambitious for ourselves. Never. As Jeremiah puts it, you seek great things for yourself, seek them not. But unfortunately, knowledge goes to our head, makes us proud, puffs us up, is the way Paul puts it. And when that happens, he says, we're lying against the truth. It's interesting. You can be an orth- as orthodox as all get out in your head and be a heretic in heart. You can have all the creeds and the theology and the doctrine down cold and have everything truthful. But if our lives do not coincide with the truth, we have perpetrated on people a gigantic hoax. We have denied the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. It may be biblical truth that we teach, but if it's mere knowledge and not wisdom, it's secular. Uh, Furthermore, it's unspiritual. The Spirit of God is not a part of that proclamation, and it's of the devil. Such wisdom is not only dead, it's demonic. 
For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder or instability in every evil practice. You see, that's why churches split. As I said the other day, churches don't split over doctrinal issues. I personally have not found any churches that split over doctrinal issues. They split over personal issues. It's pride that causes contention. And the result is disorder, confusion, chaos, and every evil practice. But conversely, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then the list of things that characterize true wisdom, and you'll notice they all have to do with behavior. It has nothing to do with what we know. It has to do with skill at life. It has to do with, with the way we comport ourselves, the kind of people we are, the kind of behavior that we exhibit. The wisdom from heaven is pure. That is, it's uh, cleansed from defilement. Sexually pure is the way the word's normally used. We don't uh, flirt. We don't flaunt our sexuality. Uh, we don't let lust set up in our minds. We can't prevent the first thought, but we don't let it stay there because it corrupts us. It's always pleasurable. Impure thoughts are always pleasurable. You can count on it. Uh, Augustine's prayer very often is our prayer. Lord, make me pure, but not yet. We, we, want, we want to enjoy sin for a season, but my, it's just so devastating to the inner man or inner woman. And it always shows up in some way or the other in the way we relate, to, particularly to the opposite sex. Wisdom from heaven is first pure, then peace-loving. We talked about that all last, uh, all last week. We make peace. We don't go around creating trouble for people. We're peaceful, composed, uh, poised, calm people. We don't create distress wherever we go. Considerate. I love that word. It, it, the closest counterpart in English is mellow. Uh, it was used in the, in the New Testament world for good wine. It's not tart or bitter, doesn't sting. It's a sweet and easy to get along with. It doesn't, doesn't rub people the wrong way. Submissive or compliant. A word we tend to identify with Walter Mitty and other milk toasts, but it's also a word that's used of, uh, of our Lord who is anything but a, uh, but a wimp. It just means submissive. I like the I like the uh, authorized the way the authorized version translated it. Easy to be entreated, teachable is the idea. The kind of person who isn't rigid in his thinking. Full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy uh, is compassion on those that are weak and helpless and who cannot help themselves. I have quoted before Gordon Donaldson, McDonald's uh, poem. Actually, it's an epitaph that he read in a, cemetery, in a Scottish cemetery in Edinburgh. Here lies Martin Elgin Broad. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would do if I were God and ye were Martin Elgin Broad. Mercy is treating people the way we want God to treat us. We want him to be tender, loving, and not a hardliner with us. Merciful people are sensitive 
to the hurts of others. They see beneath the surface. They understand what's really going on. They don't make surface judgments. I recall a fraternity meeting years and years ago when I was leading a discussion on uh, the problem of evil in the world and a young woman who was in the meeting asked a very good question. Uh, Very good questions are questions that I have an answer for. And so I gave her one of my brilliant answers. And she got up and walked out. You see, I'd miss really the the overtones of her hurt. She wasn't asking, why do people suffer? She was asking, why do I suffer? And I just shot right by her. Our Lord always uh, saw people's real needs. I think that's why... Very often his answers seem irrelevant. You, you read some of the, the stories of his, the question and answer sessions that Jesus had. Some of his answers seem to be right off the wall. The reason was he saw right to the heart of the issue. Mercy will do that for you. It just helps you to see what's going on under the surface. The wisdom from above is impartial. It doesn't discriminate between the rich or the poor. James has a half of a chapter on that subject, chapter 2, about being partial to the rich. doesn't distinguish between the attractive and the not-so-attractive, the thin and the overweight, the black and the white. It isn't racist. It isn't elitist. It isn't sexist. It doesn't make any distinction between men or women or ethnic groups. Just right across the board, just accept everyone as they are and it's sincere our motives are sincere our English word sincere is an interesting word literally it means without wax and it goes back to the Roman world and uh, the practice of unscrupulous uh, merchants to take a vase that had cracked and fill it uh, fill the crack with uh, wax and then glaze it and uh, you went down, if you went down to the market to buy uh, this, to buy a vase, you'd probably pick up one of these worthless commodities. Uh, unless it was stamped on the bottom, Cinna Syrah, without wax. And that would indicate, it's sort of like our good housekeeping seal of approval, it would indicate that this was an okay vase. Or you could take the vase, if it wasn't stamped, and hold it up to the sun. And then you would judge it by the sun, which is the, is the New Testament Greek counterpart of the Latin word. The Greek word means to judge by the sun. You look through it and you, no cracks. No machinations, no phony stuff going on inside. We've let the Lord deal with uh, the impure motives of our heart. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. I don't know if you understand the uh, significance of that verse, but uh, it really speaks to me. What it says is that people who have the wisdom that's from above will reap righteousness wherever they go. They'll sow peace, and they will reap righteousness. I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to wander around just making money and aggrandizing myself and fulfilling dreams that I have. I want to leave 
something that lasts. I want to have a lasting impact on this world. And the thing I want to leave behind is righteousness. And here you have an unequivocal promise that if you are possessed of wisdom from above, wherever you go, you're going to sow seeds that produce righteousness, peace and righteousness. But you say, oh me, I don't have that wisdom. Well, I, I, I understand. I understand fully. I can identify. Uh, this wisdom does not come from below. And since we live here below, we need to understand that we can't produce this wisdom either. It comes from above. Only God can change us. Nothing else will change our our hearts. If we want this wisdom... It comes supernaturally. It comes from heaven. It comes from above. It's not the result of trying harder and gritting our teeth and being preoccupied with being good. T.S. Eliot said, God teaches us to care and not to care. I've thought a lot about that statement this last summer. God teaches us to care about morality And not to care. In other words, we ought to want it very much. We ought to want this wisdom more than anything else. We ought to go after it like uh, we would go after buried treasure. You see, what we're usually thinking is, well, I need to go back to school. I need to get a little more education. That's what will equip me to do a better job of living life the way I want to live it. But you don't get this kind of wisdom in school. They don't teach it. They teach this to you in a classroom. Nevertheless, you have to want it very much. And if you want it very much, God will give it to you. He will again work his magic on you and produce real wisdom. That's what Eliot meant when he said God teaches us to care, to want it very much, but not to care, not to be obsessed by it, not to be preoccupied by it, not to be thrown when we fail. Simply know that God is at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the thing to do is to open our hearts to him. He will deal with our tongue, and he will give us true wisdom. I want to leave you with one final word. It's Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we all with unveiled face. No, uh, No curtains. We're not hiding behind anything. No veils. You know, we're just living out in the open. Before God. We're letting Him see us as we really are. We all with unveiled face. Beholding is in a glass the face of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. Now the word that's translated beholding is in a glass or in a mirror is actually one word that means to scrutinize something very carefully. When you look into a glass, you know, to shave or to put your makeup on or trim your mustache or whatever. You scrutinize your face. You look at it intently. And that's what James is saying, or Paul is saying. That we reflect upon the person of Christ. We look into his face in the word. And we ask to be made like him. To have his gracious character and wisdom. And he begins to change us. Little by little. He changes us from one degree of glory to the next. Doesn't happen in a hurry. But it happens.
Let's pray. As usual, Lord James hits us right between the eyes. We cannot evade the impact of these words. We are utterly helpless to tame our tongue. We cannot get what we need from any sort of intellectual enterprise here in this earth that will give us the kind of influence that will impact others for eternity. Everything that that we need in order to be effective as men and women in this world come comes from you, and we want to ask for it. We want you to deal with the sources of of our evil tongues, the cesspools of of sin and the awful rotten stuff down inside that that needs to be judged and and purified, set right by your spirit. We don't want to hide it, cover it up, pretend that it's anything more than awful. Just want to expose it to you and ask you to cleanse our hearts, knowing that as the heart is inclined, so the mouth speaks. And then we want our behavior to be conformed to yours. Keep us from being stuffy, uptight, self-righteous Christians. Help us to display the, the beauty of your character. We want to be like you. And so we ask you to begin to change us from one degree of likeness to the next. And we wait upon you while you do that good work within us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.